Hi, everyone. This is Congress to Cubicle, a podcast where we look at the efficiency, effectiveness, and credibility of government. I'm your host, Steve Goodrich, the CEO of the Center for Organizational Excellence. We're here with Dr. David Shulkin, the former Secretary of the VA, and I will say a, a significant person who really advocates for the veterans in our country. I appreciate your being here today, Secretary Shulkin. Glad to be here. So I want to talk about, you know, the VA and the need for efficiency and effectiveness within the largest healthcare system in the world. Back in December, you wrote a piece on the 10 essential elements for reforming the, the VA. What I found of interest with that, which is unusual for uh, people at your level, is both focusing on mission-centric kinds of things, as well as mission support kinds of things that are needed to support the veterans and operate the Veterans Administration. Tell me a little bit why you wrote that piece. Why was it important to address that? Well, I think, first of all, the Department of Veteran Affairs and the mission that it serves to provide health care for so many veterans, over nine and a half million veterans, is important not only to those veterans and the families, but to all Americans who understand it's part of our responsibility to support the men and women who sacrifice for our country. And when you look at the Department of Veteran Affairs, it's filled with problems and scandals and plagues that go back decades and decades, certainly in both Democratic and Republican administrations. And when you look at some of the reasons, it's because there has not been a consistent plan, mm -hmm. a consistent effort to reform the problems that exist in the government-run healthcare system. And I believe that there needs to be a foundational plan that we're all trying to achieve that we can stay fairly consistent on depending upon not so much who's running it, but the commitment that we have to fixing this system. Have you found that under the COVID pandemic, the, the system has been challenged even further? Well, I think what's happened across healthcare in both the VA system and the private sector system is that the pandemic has really exposed that we don't so much have a healthcare system. We have a very fragmented, siloed way of delivering healthcare. And the pandemic has exposed a lot of the problems and the gaps that we have in delivering healthcare. In some ways, the VA system has performed better than the private sector because there is more of a system in the VA than there is in the private sector. But it certainly has exposed a great deal of problems in the VA system that allow us to now, hopefully looking towards coming out of the pandemic, fix some of those problems. Well, some of the things that have been done with the EHR system or part partnering with the private sector, has that helped? When you talk about a system as large as the Department of Veteran Affairs, you can't think about fixing a problem in a short period of time. And that's part of what I'm saying. You need to have consistency. So I made the decision that the Department of Veteran Affairs needed to move towards a electronic health record that was similar or even identical to the one of the Department of Defense. But that decision, until it's fully implemented, will be a 10-year period of time. The VA system is that large, it's going to take 10 years to operationalize an electronic health record 
transformation. And so we're just at the beginning stages of that. And that's going to take a real commitment and consistency of effort to see that done in a way that it works for veterans and it works for the Department of Defense. You also included things like interagency collaboration. And I've seen this in many other places, whether it's, you know, mental health or financial management or many other places. What does that look like? And if the V was fully integrated appropriately with other agencies and how would it benefit the, the government and the veteran? Well, too often the government agencies simply don't work together. And so they replicate and duplicate efforts. And so if you take a department with a mission to improve the lives of veterans and you take a look at things like finding a job, how important that is. The Department of Veteran Affairs has a whole effort towards vocational training and identifying workplaces that are interested in hiring veterans, but so does the Department of Labor. And so does the Small Business Administration. Mm -hmm. And so does the Department of Defense in transition. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing these efforts really not only not working together, but in some ways competing with one another. And I got my first insight into what does it look like when agencies start to work together and take some of those walls down and start focusing on what's best for the American people. I saw that first, interestingly, in a program that was led by then Vice President Biden, of course, now President Biden, who led the cancer moonshot. And every week he would gather us together in his conference room in the vice president's office with all of the agencies represented and say, the goal here is that we work together, not separately, that you forget about all of your agency's egos and you focus on helping us do better with cancer. And I saw miraculous things happen. The NIH and the Department of Defense and VA and the National Cancer Institute and the FDA all working together on common goals. And I saw things happen in government that I thought would take years happen in a matter of weeks. And so that really changed my perspective on what could be done, because I've seen it done before. And with now President Biden in place, I'm very optimistic that we can have a lot more of that. And I think you're already hearing some of that being signaled by the new VA nominee, Dennis McDonough, who has said that his goal is to get other agencies to help improve the lives of veterans, as well as the Department of Veteran Affairs. So back a, a few years ago, we were hearing a lot about long wait times. Is that still, uh, you know, a symptom within VA? Has that been uh, reduced dramatically? Where are we with that? Well, that's the reason I entered government in the first place. I entered after the wait time crisis in 2014 that was first identified in Phoenix, but it soon became understood it was more of a systemic problem. And that's when President Obama asked me to come into the VA as the undersecretary, which is the position that runs the VA healthcare system. And that was the burning platform. That's what I focused on. And yes, we did fix that problem. And the way that I know that we fixed the problem is, is that we took hundreds of thousands of veterans who were waiting more than 30 days for care. And we created a system where we now today in every VA across the country have same day services. So that if a veteran requires an urgent medical situation to be addressed, it will be addressed that day 
in the medical center, whether it's mental health or physical health. And the way that I work to ensure that this wouldn't just be sort of a one-time fix and then drift back to being a problem again is, is that I insisted that we publish the wait times publicly so that today the VA is the only system in the country where you can go on the internet and look at what the wait times are and see whether the problem is getting better or not. And in 2018, I published a peer-reviewed study in the journal of the American Medical Association showing that VA wait times are now much better than what you would see in the private sector with your private doctors. And that the period of time that I focused on this from 2015 to 18, that VA wait times significantly decreased while the private sector did not. And so we made a big difference there. And again, it sort of reinforced in my mind that as big as an agency as the Department of Veteran Affairs is, and as much of a government bureaucracy as it is, you can make real reforms. You can make real change. And that improves the lives of veterans. And that's a reason why I'm optimistic that this system can continue to get better. So what were some of the practical things? Uh, You mentioned certainly publicizing wait times, but what were some of the internal practical things that absolutely reduced true wait time for our veterans? Well, there were many of them. Some of them included that I granted nurses and pharmacists full practice authority. That meant that rather than having to be under the direct supervision of physicians, nurses, advanced practice nurses like nurse practitioners Mm -hmm. and pharmacists could practice at the top of their license and help veterans get better access to care. So there are many parts of the country where we simply didn't have doctors, not only not enough of them, but didn't have them at all in parts of the country that are rural and Mm -hmm. suffer from healthcare shortages. But we had really good, experienced, talented nurses, but our rules didn't allow them to be able to help veterans in the way that they could. So I changed that. That was controversial, but it made a big difference. Second thing is we dramatically expanded telehealth. And that, again, allowed us to use places that we had a lot of doctors and nurses available, but by using telehealth, we could reach areas where there weren't healthcare professionals or enough of them. And since so many veterans live in rural parts of the country, that was, to me, one of the only real solutions that we could. And frankly, that effort of really building up our telehealth infrastructure was vital during the pandemic to allow us to continue to care for veterans using telehealth in a way that no other health system in the country was able to do. So those were some of the practical Mm -hmm. things. Another example was I used what was called stand downs, a military term where we had big wait times. We would only focus on one issue and that was getting those wait times down. That's what we called a stand down. And we got everybody focused on working to get veterans seen, whether it was resources in the VA system or community care resources, private doctors, private hospitals, utilizing them to a much greater extent to be able to get veterans who needed to be taken care of, taken care of. Well, I appreciate your introductory comment on that of just because it's a big system doesn't mean it can't change. And I spend a lot of time in this town and I talk to a lot of political appointees who say, this is just too big. You know, we can't change this or we can't change this. And you can change that. I agree. 
but VA, you know, healthcare is still on the GAO's high risk list. What, what does it need to do to get off? Well, every healthcare system is on a high risk list. Mm-hmm. Um, every organization that takes care of people's lives and, um, you know, has such complexity of healthcare has to always look at itself as high risk and has to look at itself to improve. Now, the VA system has a lot of problems and has a lot of things that it does well. But one of the problems that it has is, is longer term commitment because it keeps on changing leadership every few years. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't think about capital investments over multiple years. Congress likes to reissue the capital budget every year. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, a lot of the things that need to be invested in to modernize the system, like facilities, uh, like information technology systems, the financial system in the VA is built on technology from the 1950s and clearly should have been replaced decades ago, but hasn't really had anybody to grab hold of that and to focus on those types of modernization efforts. So those are the things that put the system at high risk. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, simply saying that it's a high risk organization is sort of um, that, that should be expected. And what we should be looking for is a long-term strategic plan where there stays consistency and it's not redirected through political changes that we see every two or four years. Some of the agencies, not um, I'm talking outside of VA, have had some real risk over the last few years because of a lot of staff vacancies. Where do you think VA is with that? Is that a risk, especially with COVID right now? Absolutely. VA has about 45,000 vacancies in its healthcare system. One of the things that we're seeing in the pandemic is not only did a lot of doctors and nurses and other frontline workers get sick and have to leave their workplace, but we've seen significant burnout that has led to early retirement. And so at a time that the healthcare system's being stressed, we've seen significant staff shortages all throughout healthcare. And that particularly impacts a system like VA that doesn't move quickly in its hiring process doesn't have a lot of flexibility in its salary ranges the way that the private sector does if it has shortages. And that is leading to an exacerbation or worsening of the healthcare staffing situation in the Department of Veteran Affairs. So uh, to, to leverage on that, one of the things you talk about in your 10 elements is fixing the HRIS system, fixing the technology around uh, uh, HR. What's that about? What do you think, how do you think that will help VA become more efficient and effective? Well, the HR systems um, obviously um, don't take care of patients, but they help support those that do. And when you make a job tough for those that support our veterans, Mm -hmm. uh, that is not particularly helpful. So when people have a hard time getting paid accurately, when they have a hard time getting enrolled in the payment system to begin with, those just add to the frustrations. What Mm -hmm. we're seeing now, particularly with younger people entering the job market, they want the flexibility to be able to schedule their time when they want to work and to be able to seek um, 
you know, extra shifts when they want to work. And you need to have a staffing system and the HR system that allows um, us to meet the needs of where the workforce is. And so if VA gets to be even have a bigger gap between the systems that they have and what the private sector is doing, that's going to make the staffing issues even tougher in the Department of Veteran Affairs. So we need to have a more nimble, fluid technology solution for human resource issues in the VA. And sounds like also around payments and procurement and a large number of things that that feed the beast, if you will, and support Absolutely. the organization. Right. So if you were sitting at the hearing table in front of Congress right now, what, what three or four things would you ask for? Well, the hearing table um, is is a good opportunity. And Congress, even with all the partisan divide when it comes to veterans issues, tends to be fairly bipartisan. So it's a great opportunity to ask them for help. And I like the way that you phrase that. Number one, I would make sure that we're doing everything that we need to do when it comes to the pandemic. The Department of Veteran Affairs is the largest healthcare system in the country. It employs more doctors, more nurses, more pharmacists than any other system, over 90,000 nurses, just to give one example. And yet, I don't believe it's been a big enough part in responding to the national health crisis that's going on. Um, When we see the country struggling with delivering vaccines, it should be the VA system that should have every single one of its facilities, 1,200 of them, with their doors open, with the staff involved in helping vaccinate the country. And that's only one example of a pandemic response. Now, the VA has done some things very well. It's opened itself up to vaccinating caregivers of our veterans, which is absolutely the right thing to do. But it's just the beginning of the way that the VA could help. Number two is disability reform. Our disability system, the way that we compensate those that have been injured and have sacrificed in the line of duty is a completely broken system that I believe needs significant reform. And it needs reform because it needs to work better for our veterans so that they're not fighting their government to get the types of benefits they deserve. But it also needs to work better for taxpayers because there's a lot of wasted money in the constant appeals and denials that are going back and forth between our veterans and government bureaucrats. We also need to do a better job of helping veterans who have had exposure to toxins during their time of service. So we still have veterans fighting for their benefits from Vietnam in exposure to Agent Orange. We have our Gulf War veterans fighting for exposures for Gulf War illness and for burn pit exposure, including those who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan who have been exposed to burn pits who frankly the Department of Veteran Affairs to this day has on their website that there are no known adverse consequences to exposure to burn pits. That's just simply not true. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's an embarrassment that the Department of Veteran Affairs doesn't update its website and support the veterans that need our help. So those are are a couple issues. I would certainly be asking for help in modernizing our VAs. Most of our facilities date back to just around World War II. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're 1940s, 50 vintage medical centers. I practiced in one in New York City that is a very old 
Medical Center. And frankly, my vision for veterans is state-of-the-art modern facilities, the best care anywhere that this country can offer. You also uh, mentioned in your 10 Elements Behavioral Health, and I, I, I know a good friend of mine, Charlie Curie, back in the Bush administration, ran the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration. He was also trying to work with VA and DOD to increase mental health support for our soldiers and our veterans. Is that something that still needs effort and work? Yeah, it does. But it's important to recognize the VA does extensive work with behavioral health. It is the largest behavioral health care system in the country. About 60% of veterans have some type of emotional diagnosis associated with their care. And the VA does a terrific job of helping support those veterans. But having said that, there's a lot more work to be done. My single top priority that I identified for VA when I was secretary was to end the pandemic of veteran suicide. Mm -hmm. And 20 veterans a day to this day still take their life by suicide. And that's an awful statistic and certainly something that we have to do much better in. And that does mean a reform of the way that we do behavioral health care. It means being able to work much closer with veterans who are getting their care outside the VA in the community and working with local groups, whether they're not-for-profit organizations, veteran service groups, churches, local governments, state and local governments to help have a coordinated plan to identify those veterans who may be suffering and need mental health care. And it also means that we need to do a better job at identifying solutions to the underlying reasons about why people may be suiciding, whether it's depression, PTSD, substance abuse that you mentioned, and chronic pain as a big driver of why people look towards ending their own lives. My previous guest on the podcast was David Walker, and we talked about his recent book on dealing with the deficit and you know, the financial crisis that we have. Are there ways that the VA can actually do more with less if we really start squeezing the dollars? And, and I know that in the private healthcare system, there's a lot of hospitals and centers that are pulling out of the rural communities because it's just not financially viable for them. What can we do with the VA? I've always said, even when I was undersecretary and secretary, the problems in the VA are not due to a lack of money. I would go to Congress every year and I would ask them for a budget so I could care for the country's veterans. And they would not only give me that, but they would add billions of dollars on top of it. Because Mm -hmm. to members of Congress, this was their way of showing support and their way of showing that they cared about the veterans. And while that was very much appreciated, having that much money in the system actually covers lots of problems. When you have to act efficiently, when you have to Mm -hmm. worry about where every dollar is getting spent, you have to then make decisions to fix problems that aren't working and you have to reform the system. When you throw money at problems, it's the easy way out and you simply don't always have to make those hard decisions. And so therefore, the problems in the VA have nothing to do with the lack of money, even though you hear people saying that. It simply isn't true. We need to make the hard decisions to reform the country. One of the things that I've recommended is is that the VA should be pulled out of the political process, at least the healthcare system should. It should be run with its own board, not with 435 members of Congress. 
It should not have a political appointee at the head of it, like the secretary running the veterans healthcare system. It should have a not-for-profit board with a executive who knows how to run healthcare, who reports to that board and can stay there if they're doing a good job and performing well for a consistent period of time that it takes to be able to implement these types of changes. Should, it should be run more like the way that Amtrak is run with, while there's public dollars going in to support the system, there is a board and a professional management team designed to run that system. Not that Amtrak is perfect, but that type of design is really what I think is needed in order to become more efficient, more effective, use taxpayer dollars better, and ultimately the goal of serving veterans better. Well, with the advent of, of COVID, the, the private healthcare system is latching on to telehealth, which you did much earlier in the VA system. Has that helped create efficiencies in the, in the system and in the process? I think technology and telehealth absolutely does. It's one of the only ways that I know how you fulfill the mission of the VA, which is to deliver healthcare anywhere a veteran lives. Uh It's not like most healthcare systems. And as you know, my background is being a CEO of large healthcare systems, but Uh I would operate healthcare where I had hospitals, where I had facilities. In the Department of Veteran Affairs, we're responsible for delivering healthcare, even where we don't have facilities. And the only way I know how to do that is through the use of technology like telehealth. So absolutely, that's an important part of the answer for reforming the VA system. And some, some actually say it, it, it degrades some of the services because you're not touching the patient. You're not physically there with them. I don't think telehealth is perfect for everything, but, but it can go a long way and create efficiencies in the system as well. Well, one of the things that I did when I was undersecretary and secretary was I would put on a white coat and I would go take care of veterans. So I could actually see what it was like to work in this system and work alongside other healthcare professionals to see how they were being served by the tools and support systems that I was supposed to be providing. And I started to do that by taking care of veterans in New York City. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I would go to the VA and do that. But then I started to do it also by taking care of veterans using telehealth. And I would sit in my office in Washington, D.C. and take care of patients in Grants Pass, Oregon, a little rural clinic in Oregon where I was the primary care doctor on telehealth. And I began to see what you could do and what you couldn't do. And telehealth is not for every solution. You absolutely need in many cases, to physically be there to examine a patient and to be able to fix the problem that they have. But it is a very effective tool in when it's used in the correct situations in supplementing the care that can be provided. Well, Secretary Shulkin, I want to thank you for your time. I know your commitment to veterans. I really appreciate your holistic view of, of how you approach the VA and, and what its needs are. Thank you for participating in today's podcast. Thank you. In our next podcast, we'll look at procurement reform across government. My guest will be Soraya Correa, the Chief Procurement Officer of the Department of Homeland Security. We'll look at her innovation lab, and we'll look at a number of procurement reforms going on across government. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. 